Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 6th of July, as we record. Some big topics coming up today. This week marks the publication of our annual Top 50 ETFs list. So we'll be discussing how said list has taken shape in 2023. Meanwhile, as rising rates lead to some perhaps unwise asset allocation decisions, we'll examine how investor preferences are changing in the context of those higher rates. On which note, we're also looking at banks' own saving rates, the subject of much criticism this week. Uh, we'll be examining what that pressure means for shareholders and why savers need to be careful with some of the deals seemingly on offer. Before all that, though, we will start with a company whose own fortunes took a turn for the worse long before the end of free money. That is banknote printer Delarue. Joining me to discuss all of this are Julian Hoffman. Hello, Dan. Alex Newman. Hi, Dan. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Val Cipriani. Hi, Dan. And Dave Baxter. Hi, Dan. So we begin then with Delarue. What was once a storied company has long since seemingly been circling the drain, as one of the present attendees said earlier today. Uh, Alex, four-year results were out last week. Some signs of life there, but nonetheless a difficult road back for Delarue at this stage. Yeah, well, I mean, we can still say it's storied, maybe not for all the right reasons. The problem with Delarue for a long time is it's been flailing around for a convincing growth narrative. So there were signs of life with these results, um, and that led to a bit of a relief rally in the shares, which were 10% up on the day. But there was, you know, little signs of life really in the the full year results as reported. So they had a £30 million IF. RS loss, which reflected big impairments um, that they described as exceptional charges again. Though, I mean, it's certainly part of a non-exceptional pattern of sort of restructurings and contract losses that they've had to um, account for. So over five years, I was just looking back at their, you know, from a financial position, how things have been going. Sales are are down, you know, nearly 30%, which is a lot faster rate than uh, of decline than costs. So that means operating income is halved. And of that total operating profit generated over that period, about a fifth has gone on impairments and charges. So, yeah, the circling the drain uh, accusation or, or, yeah, tag feels appropriate when you look over, you know, look over the past half decade. The big problem, you know, they've got now and is, is you know, they're quite an indebted company. Net debt is set to hit £100 million at the half year. And they're currently paying about 8.5% on their debt. And that's, um, you know, if if we sort of believe the markets today, that's likely to rise to to possibly 10% by um, by the end of the, the current financial year to March. That means then the annual interest rates are suddenly, you know, pushing quite above £10 million. And yet their operating profit for, is sort of forecast to edge to the low 20s, 20 millions uh, of pounds in in. 2024. So it's it's a really uncomfortable you know picture from a financial perspective. Some of that uh, rally, as you said, was because you know they had some new debt covenants. They've managed to uh, delay the uh, pension contributions they need to pay for a couple of years. I mean, uh, to me, that all sounds very much like kicking the can down the road. They would say, I'm sure, you know, it buys them some breathing space. Uh, what's your, you know, is, is it possible to say which of the two it is at this stage? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I would agree. I think it's important to see. You know, sometimes it's important to see rallies for what they are. So I think in this case, you know, when a company says its lenders are relaxing their covenants and there's, you know, 
bit of breathing space in the pension deficit. It doesn't mean we're at the beginning of a turnaround. Some of the the analyst com, you know commentary was around that we're we're at the trough here. But it ju- you know it just means there's I think there's more time to find a solution which is in everyone's best interests. And you know we don't have this material uncertainty around the go- the you know the going concern. Um, uh, question hanging over everything, but yeah, I mean, cash flow is really what's going to keep the lights on here, and there are, you know, there are big questions about that. Not only from, you know, what we've seen in recent years, but um, what they're able to do in in the in the coming years. Yeah, you're right. Actually, it's, it's the problem really is that the company, at least from the company's perspective, they have the lenders by the proverbials. In that, there's only 19 million of equity left in um, uh, in Delarue. And if uh, the lenders were to pull the plug tomorrow, uh, all they really would get is, uh, you know, a wait behind HMRC uh, for, for for payment out of whatever's left. Uh, and uh, they owe HMRC something like 23 million alone in accumulated tax losses. Um, and basically, it, it's, it is a classic case of, well, you know, if you, if you borrow a pound from the bank, you're a servant to the bank. But... Uh, if you borrow 100 million from the bank, the bank is a servant to you. So um, it, it, I wouldn't personally read too much into the idea that that was a recovery. I think that just, you know, the fact that they could get some breathing space on their covenants just reflects the fact that the banks won't get anything if they demand it all tomorrow, except for, you know, a, a warehouse in Basingstoke somewhere that will be emptied of equipment. Well, I suppose the question is, well, the question maybe if this will happen, but but uh, I want to know so potentially where growth could come from. You know, if things were to go right, obviously uh, currency, you know, banknote printing is three quarters of the business still. There's also an authentication arm, which which is, you know, well, it's forecast to grow at a, a relatively uh, a quick pace in the next couple of years. But we have seen that before um, not come to fruition effectively. As you said, Alex, it's still losing contracts, which some of the exceptional charges are effectively just dealing with a loss of contracts, which, you know, when you're in a bit of a well, a potential death spiral, you can see the, the potential for more exceptionals coming as more contracts are lost. But nonetheless, you know, they do have some areas of, of potential interest. You know, they have a contract with Microsoft uh, on the authentication side, for example. I think that struggled because that Microsoft is selling fewer fewer PCs. So there's a there's a cyclical aspect to that, but maybe structurally that could be a benefit in the long term everything about this business seems to be in a structure you know cyclical downturn as i mean in how many people carry cash anymore i mean even out here in the wilds of devon down we uh, we use tap and pay um and it's yeah, even and that was long before many of my uh, uh, people in in london were doing the same but i mean it's it, it doesn't seem like that the business has any part of it from my point of view at least that you could say has makes it long-term viable (laughs) we should you know in fairness to them i mean the the outlook was a lot brighter the tone was a lot brighter than it has been recently and then they're sort of saying that there are encouraging signs of recovery and sort of a good rate of contract wins which are coming back and there had been a little bit of a pause and i suppose the other you know the other caveat to the the you know the, the the sort of quite obvious structural decline story about moving to a cashless society is that you know it's not just the U- uk or sort of europe that that delarue serves that there is you know it's a global business serving economies where cash is still you know still the dominant payments um mechanism but i i mean the thing i found a bit jarring about these results is that you know three months ago we were told that that you know the core the core currency market was 
at its weakest it has been for two decades. We've got three months later and we're sort of encouraging signs of recovery. It's kind of, it's a bit hard to resolve what, you know, what might be, uh, you know, what definitely appears to be a structural decline with what might be a sort of blip in or upturn in, in contracting. So it's a bit hard to read, I found, from these results. But then I suppose it always is from a, a very small snapshot of, of, of trading. I mean, you could. I mean, you could. You could put the money into this as a as a speculative punt, but I I would venture that you'd have to be prepared to lose it in the long term. Uh, I suppose another potential, uh, you know, growth area has been the polymer banknotes. You know, the shifting from paper to polymer. Although I think in the analyst call, when asked why they hadn't mentioned polymer in, in the latest figures, they said, well, there has been a, a short term sort of blip in growth there as well. Obviously short term is their description of it but but that's potentially something too which could be a a tailwind if we're if we're looking for such things in future you know as more countries do what we do and shift their notes to that style final question maybe on Dillaroo. you know last year there was some talk crystal amber uh the activist investor was pushing for a breakup would there still be much point in such a thing when we're looking at a company with a market cap of you know only even with the rally now it's hovering around 100 million mark you know splitting off the authentication division quarter of revenues something like that would would be acquirers now just wait be waiting for the end or would they potentially be looking at doing something or making an offer for the entire company yeah i mean you know you can never rule things out the you know the enterprise value of the business is now 40 percent um discount to sales so you know if you're if you're very long-term focused and you're able to absorb some of this you know the, the debt they have in the business then Maybe there's arguments to be made. Certainly, with the authentication business, there is um, there's probably a broader range of buyers for that arm. And the crystal amber, the argument they were making at the time last year, which is the beginning of 2022, was that there's more value there than the whole market capitalization of the business. So, whether a breakup is the best hope for shareholders, you know, is is maybe one of their you know sources of optimism. Um, I, I, the big, the, I think the point to emphasise here is that there's been a big difference since the start of 2022 and today, and that's the cost of capital. So the prospect of competitors just coming up and hoovering up this business really requires a sort of compelling financing case for them, assuming money is equally tight at their at their end. The currency division is not a compelling growth story. So, um, so yeah, how you how from the other side of the table you make that case, I'm not quite sure. So it probably would be the you know the 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 growth business, if any, which is going to be the saviour here. Yeah, I mean, can't rule it out, but um, we could also have alternatives which may be less um, exciting for shareholders. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. But you would hope at this stage most shareholders would appreciate that as a, a real possibility, given the the direction of travel over the last few years. Let's turn to uh, something more positive now. Our cover story this week, our top 50 ETFs piece, uh, our annual feature, the 10th year, Dave Baxter, our funds editor, of doing this uh, uh, this feature. Uh, why don't we start just by kind of, you know, laying out the the ground rules for what we're trying to achieve here and what we're, we're looking to do. I mean, you know, you could say it does what it says on the tin, but, but <laughs> how, how do we sort of look to construct this list? Yeah, hopefully it's relatively self-explanatory, but we're, um, I suppose we frame it as kind of low-cost portfolio building blocks. So if you do want that passive exposure, what we're looking to identify is the best funds in terms of price, but not just price, also whether it tracks the most appropriate index for a given region or theme or area. 
And also we tend to like the funds that are kind of pretty big because that should normally um, bring you a decent level of liquidity and it should, you know, rein in some of those costs that you don't think about so much like transaction costs and that kind of thing and trading spreads. Yeah, uh, as you say, you know, the idea is to make it, you know, at least from first principles, quite straightforward, building blocks, you know, something easy to get started with. But it can be easier said than done, even with ETFs, you know, uh, you say price, obviously, we had our kind of cheap funds feature a few weeks ago. This looks at uh, some of the other factors in more detail, because, you know, choosing two ETFs tracking, say, you know, emerging market index, or something like that, they can be quite different from one another, even if they, you know, both track their respective indices quite closely those indices can be be markedly different in makeup that kind of thing so so there's a lot of that in in the piece as well isn't there about how investors should think about all these things and you know the fact that there is more to think about than when making these selections than just you know finding the first one on the list on your platform and buying that uh the other the other way we structure it is kind of a three-pronged approach really yeah with a core section and then two smaller sections yeah yeah so as you mentioned we have the core one which again hopefully self-explanatory but you, you it's your S&P 500 trackers your MSCI, MSCI world trackers the kind of you know focusing on those really big established markets that perhaps you would want to form the obviously the, the core of your portfolio then the satellite list looks at um, slightly more kind of targeted funds so for example dividend funds um, we've in recent years had a few kind of investment style factor ETFs, so kind of value ETFs, minimum volatility ETFs, that kind of thing. And they're a bit more interesting, but perhaps kind of smaller positions where you want to add a bit of edge in your portfolio. And then going even more specialist, we have a very small niche category, which contains um, some commodity products. And also uh, we have, you know, a kind of a smattering of thematic ETFs. Um, there are some quite big criticisms of thematics, but given people are quite interested and we do just highlight a few options there as well. Over the past few years or over the last couple of years, there hasn't been too much uh, change to the list. This year, however, there are a few. Um, without pulling the curtain back on, you know, exact names, things like that, can, <laughs> can we say a bit about the kind of funds that have come in and dropped out in terms of the nature and, and the thinking behind some of these changes? Yep. Yeah, so there are a couple of um, maybe not exciting changes where we've simply swapped out funds where... Don't downplay it, Dave. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, a couple where it's kind of, um, you know, for reasons such as a different option has better trading space, mm. that kind of thing. But the more exciting options, I'm going to use the word exciting a lot, um, relate to perhaps the structure of the list and what you might be getting. So, for example, uh, you know, you kind of alluded to some markets have kind of skews and compositional things you need to be aware of. One example you have, the US market clearly is so dominated by the likes of the, the tech majors. And as an offset to that, we've included another option that um, takes a equal weight approach to the S&P. So it kind of, it gives every holding um, and every kind of share in the S&P 500, something like a 0.2% weighting. So what you're doing is you're stripping out that massive um, bias towards big tech and you're bring in more of a kind of small cap focus. Another feature we have this week and related feature is uh, looking at how people can complement these kind of funds, because obviously for a lot of listeners and readers, you know, they might have you know, a couple of ETFs, a couple of passive funds doing certain things, and, and they'll add to that, you know, various either active funds or shares or things like that. So 
the feature we have this week, which admittedly you didn't write, but uh, <laughs> um, is looking at what you know you can complement a global index tracker with in your portfolio. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's quite useful as well to talk about that because for a lot of people you know, looking at this list, they'll be interested in just a certain part of it, and then they'll be thinking how to do things differently, and you know, in a bit more of an interesting way outside of that. So, so what are kind of the, some of the things people can think about if they have a global tracker? What can they kind of add to that? Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose that's those areas where you might tinker. That's where you add more character to your portfolio and you might actually add more kind of growth. But one example is kind of smaller companies. Uh, another example, I suppose, is regions beyond the US because the US is just so dominant when you look at the composition of um, your average global equity tracker. And then I suppose other areas are kind of sector funds. Um, you might begin to look at the likes of single country funds. So if you look at emerging markets, an emerging markets tracker is very China heavy, but people may want to focus more on areas like India, which is very in vogue in the last year or so. So you can kind of double down on some of those um, allocations. Yeah, over the last few years, you know, some of those decisions have become, certainly, if not more pressing, then people have certainly become more aware of them. You know, the US, as you say, is you know more than two thirds of global indices now. China, obviously, is a, a region that a lot of people increasingly want to avoid. Some people might see an opportunity there, but others, you know, are very much, well, in the uninvestable camp. So so there are these asset allocations decisions to think about with everything you do, you know, not just, uh, um, you know, even if they are set and forget funds. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's, like you say, we, we've really seen those, those biases have become uh, pretty obvious. You know, last year, the US kind of big tech stocks sold off pretty heavily. And, you know, China has continued to way on emerging markets funds you know the great reopening trend we were we we're talking about at the start this year just hasn't really so far done much to to move the dial so yeah yeah that's certainly a, a trend i thought would uh, do more to uh, <laughs> i remember you dial. talking yeah, up yeah. at the start of the year certainly in terms of returns um but that hasn't happened yet so yeah. early not wrong perhaps well i don't know i'm starting to think wrong but that's you know probably a good <laughs> contrarian sign if you're uh, doing the opposite of what i say as I say, that is our cover feature this week, so do pick up a copy. Uh, we have the full table in there of the full 50 funds across all categories, across all equity markets, and some uh, non-equity ETFs in there as well. We are now, though, going to shift gears only slightly and talk uh, about asset allocation from a different point of view, the perspective being the number of investors who are now starting, if you look at the fund flow figures, to shift out of equity funds into the likes of high-yielding bond funds, even into money market funds as well. Obviously, you can get, and certainly in the UK, you can get rates of you know 5% plus now on such things. Uh, the question, though, really is perhaps if we, if we start with the asset allocation point of view, Alex, I'll come to you again on this. Um, investors are looking for those kind of assets. Is there a danger of, if not the tail wagging the dog, then... There's a danger people think, oh, well, I, you know, I can get this very high yield now on a bond fund or even the money market fund, that they kind of upend their entire strategy to do that. And then they end up, if not now, then certainly in six or 12 months' time, sort of wondering what they do now. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I suppose you've had in recent months people waking up to levels of, of uh, you know, seemingly risk-free income and, and yield that you can you can earn um and you know after a, a tricky year and a half for for equity 
investors if if these you know these hypothetical swing voters were in equities the prospect of of just locking in 5% you know will, will certainly feel compelling i mean at an institutional investor level as well i suppose um if you're a new to your pension provider there you, you can sort of see the logic in in this shift to to higher yielding uh, assets and, and bonds um I, I suppose i suppose yeah i mean it's, it, there's a lot of different components to this because it it's it's it depends on what the hypothetical investor saver we're talking about here is you know are people looking at their outgoings and their sort of monthly cash flows and saying what i want is coupon payments um or a monthly uh, you know, top up of my income from from savings now because everything else is feeling quite stretched. Or are people thinking about the long term and thinking this it feels like a safer way to compound my wealth, and I would take six percent from uh, equity returns in any uh, ordinary year, so I might as well do it more safely. So it's kind of it's a fine balance here. You know, you, you are with bonds and um, you know safer high some safer high yielding products, also sort of locking in. A loss when inflation is still running at you know at nearly ten percent. So there's that in the mix. Um, it, it's a hard one, you know. I think it's just, maybe we'll come on to talk about the you know banks and the savings rates questions there. It's it's really hard to know what the you know the hypothetical um, saver investor is we're talking about here because I think circumstances really do depend on on your horizon and also your your immediate needs. Which for some people they're having to step back into thinking about different products because their month-to-month circumstances have changed so well on the subject of uh savings rates on traditional bank accounts if you will uh val you've written about this this week again there are a number of aspects here but if, if we focus just on people you know looking at something which we don't typically talk about too much on this podcast because it's not you know strictly investing but it is something which is attracting more people now given even on certain savings accounts you can get uh five percent plus uh but Sometimes some of these deals aren't quite what they are cracked up to be. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, it's not it's not a new thing per se because it's always been the case. Like you look at advertising and then you look at the terms and conditions and usually they're two different things. It happens fairly often. But I think with saving rates being higher, they look even shinier, if that makes sense. Uh, so, you know, if you if you go and see like hello, here you can get 7% on your cash, you will think, well, I want this thing. It's fair to say that you would want to take a better look, especially now, at what exactly these deals mean in terms of how much money you're going to uh, make out of it. And I think the best the best example here, and again, it's always been, but it just looks that way more now. It's what they're usually called like a regular savings account because they have these very kind of like higher than the rest um, rates advertised, but that's because they have quite low limits on how much you can put in every month. So basically, you can put in, for example, say 200 or 300 pounds a month, uh, and you will have often your cash locked in for a year, so like a fixed term. And so what happens there is that in practice, you will get your 7% on what you put the first month, and then gradually on an annual basis, it will inevitably like lower down. And so what that means is that, is that, you know, those accounts are great if you're actually looking to put away some money every month uh, and kind of like encourage yourself to save on your income. But if you already have the savings, you're typically better off with a fixed term account from the start because then the math just doesn't add up. And obviously that's just an example, but what the, the case I think I was making in the column it, is that banks are especially keen now to show 
that they are giving back some of the profits they're making on mortgages to the people who are banking with them, to the savers. Uh, and so they might sometimes get a bit more aggressive with their advertising. And uh, you kind of need to be a bit more careful than usual, basically. Yeah, I think even this morning, again, Thursday, as we record, there's been, uh, you know, the banks are up in front of uh, committees today. And, and uh, unsurprisingly, several have uh, announced this morning some higher savings accounts ahead of that. Uh but yeah, there are things to watch for. The, that regular saver thing is, is a case in point. And as you say, you can't typically put lump sums into there to begin with either. Certainly with the big banks, if you look at, you know, if you have a current account with a, a big bank, as I do, you look at it. And the only way you can get anything near the top rates is either with that kind of starting from zero or with a fixed term uh, account, which, you know, is fine in some circumstances, but some people may not or may not be able to lock their money away as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and also like, you know, there's different fixed terms. So, for example, if you have a one year, that might even make more sense. But some of them are, you know, three, four, five years longer. Uh, and again, when if you can afford to lock away that say those savings, that money for that long, uh, should you should probably think about investing it at that point. Yeah, and the other thing to say nowadays is, you know, be aware, I suppose, of the personal savings allowance because uh, if you're a higher rate taxpayer and you're not in a tax wrapper account, you're quickly going to see that 5% rate become something more like 3% when you account for the, the 40% uh, tax you have to pay on it. Julian, from, from the shareholder point of view, uh, talking about banks here, you know, again, there's, there's political pressure on that moment to pass on these rates uh, more widely, or at least to be seen to be doing so. At the same time, you know, banks have already said, as we've discussed on the show, that, that they think that net interest margins have you know, not going to be quite as high this year as people first thought, perhaps partly because there is some of that pressure now. Is this something shareholders should be considering if they're, if they're still holding on to banks? I mean, arguably, they've already been discounted. Um, I mean, none of either banks are either flat or slightly down mm. uh, at this point. Uh, and they gave up all the, they actually made their biggest uh, moves uh, last year in the expectation of a decent first half. Yeah. So from a from a shareholding point of view, I don't think it actually makes any difference. You might want to consider whether, you know, in fact, if there is a, a discount move going on, you can eventually buy back in at a you know a point where interest rates go up again, or the expectation that interest rates will go up again, and then you might see another re-rating of shares. So actually, for shareholders, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. I mean, it, it's all about the, the the kind of political battle between savers and the government, and and it, that kind of that that sort of triangle on the banks in one corner. But I, I, don't, I mean, there's nothing really they can, uh, unless they, the only thing that the government could do would be to, to, to change capital ratios, which might force them to, in a sense, pay out more. But um, there's no sign that they're going to do that at the moment. I mean, shareholders' point of view, the, the story has already moved on to an extent, hasn't it, from the net increase interest income increase to the the risk of recession and what that might mean for for the other side. I mean, of... everyone's more worried about the loan books. Yeah, now. Exactly. It's not, yeah. Nothing, to, nothing really to do with the. Uh, the deposit side of the business. Which does mean if probably in a lot of cases, if you want those those high deposit rates, you're gonna to have to open another account with a challenger bank or something and you know, then there's some admin involved in keeping track of that, etc. If you want really you know, you have to go to Ford Finance, you can you can get six percent. But I mean it's uh, uh there there are there are options out there. It's just a question of finding them really. Yeah. Alex, another thing we've spoken about before on the podcast is you know the implication of a higher risk free rate and you know investors all savers, you're moving to these kind of accounts for the likes of dividend income investing, you know. Uh, there's some still fairly juicy yields out there in the UK market, but 
at the same time, they're now competing with a 5% base rate. So what does that mean, really? If, if anything, for income investing, does that mean people have to be more cautious, be more aware of, you know, what the relative return is they're getting, in short? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. The, I mean, it, I mean, the net effect is it just raises the bar for what we should expect of companies' returns, really. So, you know, if Bank of England rates are now heading towards 6.5% um, by next March and and in our in our trader email this morning there was a we picked up on a JP Morgan note saying that you know they think interest rates need to hit 7% to properly tame inflation I think that was it that was the uh, worst case scenario that was the worst case scenario okay uh, important caveat but i mean you know we've got further <laughs> the, to go the worst case scenario does seem to keep going worse so yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but yeah i mean the you know the net impact on equities is they have to offer a compelling you know above historical trend growth rate at a time when we might be heading into recession. Okay, you know, UK equities uh, aren't uh, as plugged into the UK economy as um, other, you know, other market indices. So there is that, um, there is, I suppose, that hedge there. Um, but, you know, the, the FTSE 100 or the, and the all share yield about 4% at the moment, and they trade on a forward earnings multiple of about just over 10. So, um so, you know, you have obviously you have the equity growth story long term, which you've got to factor in. It's not just about comparing 4% dividends with 5% coupon payments from gilts or whatever it is. But but definitely the risk reward trade off is getting harder for, for investors to to calculate, um, which is, you know, it is, it, it's true, I think, to say that it's becoming more compelling to own bonds with the enormous caveat that, you know, inflation hopefully is going to come down. Um, over the next year, because you know, if it, it does stay elevated, then which it, it it well might, then you are locking in sort of a guaranteed loss. Whereas there is always this opportunity with equity um, equities to to sort of to find some alpha um, in the broader investment uh, asset universe. Yeah, well, as with all these things, it's a, a movable feast, isn't it? And and who knows what the situation will be like in six or even three months' time, but. Uh, we will continue to monitor these things, of course, and continue discussing them on the show. But for today, that brings us to the end. As I say, we do have our top 50 ETFs issue this week, so pick that up. And dividend investors can look forward to Phil Oakley on BT and a range of other features, as usual, in the magazine this week. But thank you to everyone this week for the podcast, for joining me. Thank you to Alex, to Julian, to Dave, and to Val. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next time with another Companies and Markets show. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 